0: How is it going, everybody? This is Mark Stokes here. And this is Dean Scurry. And I am a traveller. And I am a countryman. Welcome to A Traveller and a Countryman Podcast. Podcast. So
1: welcome to episode 28 of A Traveller and a Countryman Podcast. And we have a lovely guest in today. Writer, podcaster, historian, and all-round lovely bloke,
2: Donald <laughs> Fanon. Yup, the flats. Welcome <laughs> to the moon, Great to be here, great to be here. I spent last night at a gig with a different Scurry, Billy Scurry, and um, now I'm here with Ian Scurry. <laughs> where were you we uh, with Billy? <laughs> I was in the, uh, the basement of the Bernard Shaw, the new lovely. Bernard Shaw, up in Glasnevin, uh, Fittsburgh, just by the bridge there. And it was great. Luke Una was DJing, great DJ, and a good friend of, of Billy's went along. It was great. Bob before Christmas, you know. Remember last year we couldn't do anything? Is it? Yeah. Like it's kind of blanked from your head You know yeah. what I mean What I done last year But like Damien Dempsey And Vicar Street these, They were traditions Things that we did every year And you couldn't do them It Dempsey so was saying that strange. last
1: night Actually I went to see Damien last night The fourth gig of his Vicar Street uh, run And he was saying Last year it was like Something stupid Like quarter capacity Yeah yeah of and you sit a down gig.
2: at the gig And yeah, how well did that work you know? <laughs> So you, you were up dancing last night Yeah it was great It was great And Luke Una is a great DJ From uh, Sheffield originally But he would have been One of the big kind of Manchester DJs in the 90s And just great to see That scene Like Billy was the heart Of that scene in Dublin Once upon a time You know, And I uh, felt like a lot of people were Coming back out To see you know Gold standard stuff Which is great
1: Yeah I've done a, a recent Documentary with Sky That will be coming out In the new year And we cover some of that era I won't tell you too much what it's about because uh, it, it'll be nice as the reveal, but it's a little bit about that era, dancing
2: and raving and all that type the of The Billy stuff. Scurry years, the Johnny Moy years, the kitchen, all that stuff. The, the, the ecstasy <laughs> years of, of <laughs> Ireland. The agony and the ecstasy pills. So Martin,
1: this is Donald <laughs> you haven't met before. So my introduction uh, to Donald was that he does a podcast himself called Three Castles Bornin'. He's a writer. He's a historian. Um, probably the last time we chatted was in Electric Picnic when he was doing a podcast. Well,
0: welcome, Donald, onto the podcast. Anyway, Great to hear you. you're very, very proper to, studio. I was <laughs> going to ask you uh, what is it that you do, but Dean said it all. Do you're a writer, philosopher, arranger, uh, podcaster?
2: <laughs> Not sure. About probably but more. Yeah, I run a I run a, a social history podcast called Tree Castles Burning, and pretty much every week it's a totally different part of Dublin history. So it might be housing, or music, or culture. But it's been a, it's been great. And it kept me saying, you know, through, through the lockdown, when you're able to meet up with people like this in person and have podcasts, I mean, they're just, it's like the radio. So I suppose the housing it's one really, is an interesting one, is it? I mean, look, is I, anything to do with all this my day job, I, I work in um, Henrietta Street, the Tenement Museum. And yeah, housing is the issue of issues now, isn't it? Yes, I absolutely. I think everyone's going to a story and saying, how do we fix this? <laughs> you know, are, are the lessons of the past the lessons of tomorrow? But it's it seems to be, to me anyway, It's it's, Everything, everyone is talking about all it the is time. the housing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this year, I mean, we had uh, Ono Brin. We brought Ono Brin. I invited a, a TD to a music festival, which was a mad idea. And I didn't know if he'd do it or not. And when you think about electric, a lot of people said, why are you talking to a TD about housing and electric picnic? I said, who goes to electric picnic? Mostly young people. Yes. Mostly people who are at home in their mom and dad's, you know, front room. Mostly people who want to get out there and rent and can't do it. So I thought this was the perfect audience to do that. So, housing, w-
0: we when you talk about the
2: housing are you sort of raising issues like with the... Well, I suppose for me when I look back on housing I find it amazing that we were able to build housing in this country at times when we were economically on our knees. Like in the 1930s you know, De Valera and that government launched a massive housing drive at a time when the country had nothing. So, I don't think it's about resources I think it's about will I don't think there's any will to do anything about the housing crisis yeah. but People want it. Want change. Even on the way out here, you pass so many student accommodation blocks. I mean, that's not proper housing. That's not a, no, an answer it's, to, the, uh, to the problem.
1: We, we were just standing outside the building here and right across the road, there is a place that looks like a hotel, but it's student yeah. accommodation. And it looks like somebody's going to flip it into a hotel. It just shows you that there's a business behind it. Oh, yeah. There's huge international money behind it. Just like the the lack of a shopping centre here in Ballymun. It's a green field. You said what? What's it, What what was in that field? Oh,
2: well, that was the heart of Ballymoon. Yeah, that was the heart of the community. A shopping center that had been through loads of times. But when you don't see it there, it looks like that's been a field for like a thousand years. Well, it? <laughs> it's and there was hundreds of millions
1: on the table when the Metro North was being uh, you know, touted through Ballymone. And then because of the the game of economic crashes yeah. happened in
2: 2008, they pulled that off the table. And it's been lying fucking idle uh, since. It was weird walking through it in the latter days. I remember I a meeting about something over in the Axis and I was mad early and I walked through that shopping centre and it was a ghost town at that point. Like, systematically everything closed Yeah, they the slowly closed everything down, that's right. Yeah, and it just felt like what's going on? Like the crumbling shopping centre. We had know? done stuff in it,
1: like we'd made short films and we actually put a play on it and all that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just to show the spookiness of it. That it was just, it was like a fucking ghost town. Yeah,
2: 28 Days Later, that movie where Killian Murphy wakes up in hospital and there's a virus and everyone's gone loco everyone's gone zombie that was Ballymun Shopping Centre <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up on these empty streets in London you know everyone's just done a runner and that was kind of what Ballymun Shopping Centre and Crumlin Shopping Centre still feels like that but the social there's just history,
1: a single duns the social history of Ballymun Shopping Centre and I, I like the way you used the word social history because it's not just a history it's yeah. not just the power history of you know what battle was won by whom it's the
2: as you say sometimes it's the working class history yeah, I mean, there's, there's big history, political history, you know, who was Prime Minister of Britain from X to Y, or, you know, who was Taoiseach from X to Y. And then there's social history, which I consider to be the history of everyday life. And that's what people are really interested in. People are very, very interested in, you know, the stories of, for example, uh, before I came here today, I was at a protest for the Ivy Markets on Francis Street. Oh, which lovely. Which just fucking falling into total decay. And there was a protest outside, and, and these uh, pretty much all local ladies Elderly ladies were talking about what it was like to work there and their mothers had worked there and their grandmothers had worked there. And, worked there. and that's real social history. You know, these people... It was stuff like that about, just
0: brings people together, right, like, doesn't
2: oh, it? Yeah. Basically, as a community, like, you know... It gives people a sense of pride, Yeah, which is yeah. one of the great things history can do. It can give people a sense of pride within any community to look back on their past and what's there. And yeah, political history is fascinating too, but it's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? You know, it's... You know, well, I think there's which, less
1: gems in it that, that, uh, that are unknown... You know, there are gems, and that's where we kind of get, you know, archaeology even, you know what yeah. I mean? There's a whole field there.
2: In social history, there's so many hidden gems. Oh, yeah. The thing is, if you can get people to talk, I think the heart of social history is oral history, which is where you sit people down and you just talk to them about their life, what they did or where they worked or all of that. That's you know, what we that's... done with Winnie.
1: Or not uh, Winnie. That's what we done with Ellie, uh, Martin's mammy, uh, a couple of episodes ago. And she just sat down. We were up in our whole caravan, actually. Uh, and we had to set up like this, and uh, just turn on the mics, and she just talked, and she just talked about living in tents. And my ma heard that, and she was blown away by it, and that gave her the courage to come on and talk
2: about her yeah, social history growing brilliant. up. But sometimes what happens with people are quite people don't feel that their stories are important. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, It's very hard to convince to other
0: person that knows the importance of it, isn't that's it? it. And, the can be, can be tough.
2: and sometimes I don't know if, if you had this experience with your mothers, but sometimes someone is all up for it, they're like gung ho. And the second the mic turns on, they kind of get a bit worried. Yeah, that's anxious, right, yeah. You know? So when you so break that mas barrier... One,
1: my mas one was about three hours, because it was an hour of, oh, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. we kind of got into it. Then you, you know me. what I mean? And then, and then I said, look, we can edit all of the dead area of it, all of this nervousness, and we could just make it flow. And that's the, the beauty of doing this. So relax, just relax it. Yeah, it. I
0: think the fact that they know that it can be edited, it helps them to relax because... They can talk, get, talk into sometimes getting talk into something that they might sort of think, oh, what? did I go? Where I yeah, 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 yeah. go there, kind of? Shouldn't have said that. Whatever, well, yeah. knowing <laughs> that it can be taken out if they're, if they're happy for that, like, you know. Yeah. It gives them that little bit of peace of mind, doesn't so it? God
2: can't change the past, but Dean Scurry can in the editing. Yeah, he absolutely. Can do that, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about editing because one of the reasons you do
1: social history is to talk about the stuff that's been edited out or airbrushed over. And I, I suspect that that's why
2: you got into this. Did you study history? I did, yeah. My background was in history. And I mean, I think every historian has a reason that they're in, interested in history. Um, my dad retired now. He was in the Dublin Fire Brigade. And he was simultaneously a fireman and the historian of the fire brigade. And he hadn't gone to college or anything. But he just became interested in this himself. And gradually over time, and the job became the kind of in-house historian of the, of the brigade. So that meant I would have grown up in a house where there was just amazing old stuff, you know, like Victorian fire helmets and just all this amazing stuff. But he would have worked with guys who were at the Dublin bombs, you know, on the scene on Talbot Street, Talbot Street within yeah. minutes of the bombs going off. He would have worked with people who were at the Stardust and he wouldn't have been a million miles removed from people who had memories of things like the burning at the British embassy after Bloody Sunday. So there was this great culture of, of, I suppose, an awareness of the past, how powerful it can be, how heavy it can be, uh, but he was really committed to um, gathering that history. So yeah. I think that was the biggest influence on And on, how on airbrushed
1: me. it can be as well. Like you mentioned
2: two tragedies, the Stardust and oh, the, the yeah, Talbot Street bombings. Like. Deep scars in the city in some ways. And not things people necessarily want to talk about. But it's yeah. very, it's a very healing thing as well, I think, for people to talk about those kind of things. And I have noticed there's a lot of oral history work done now within fire brigades around the world. Stuff about the troubles from lads who worked in in Belfast and Derry. Like horrible profession at that time, you know, but the awareness, I suppose, of that fire brigade history really interested me because it's work history, but it's also a big part of the city story and it's connected to so many things. So in the 20th century, like from the rising all the way up to the Troubles, through those awful events we spoke about in Dublin, they've been at the heart of so much of the past, you know, and uh, yeah, the way he approached that really got me interested in history. That was the beginning of it all uh, for me, but he self-educated Published a couple of books on the on the Fire Brigade and I think that was a real a great achievement. I think people always think you need a, a degree to do something, you know, don't you need passion, passion. And was first, he many years working with the fire brigade? He was in it for three decades in Dolphins Barn, which third was <laughs> Dolphins Barn was at one point the busiest fire station in Europe. And apparently it was like the second or third busiest in the world. It was just it was just a madhouse. Why was that? Just, just it was just loads uh, of people there. Yeah, it was covering a massive area. Yeah. Uh, it, it was kind of covering parts of the city, the centre, but also Crumlin and Drimna. And it was just a busy place. It was just a never-ending circus of a fire station. But he is loved
1: that, it. Is it. That's just on the canal there, is it? Right in the canal. Yeah, right I know. Because, canal. Uh, I have a history. My father has a history with the fire brigade because we washed the windows of the fire brigade. Um, I was telling Martin yesterday, as we drove past the headquarters uh, near Clontarf, we dad got a contract for cleaning all the windows for the foyer. brigades, and it was it was a job or a contract he could hang his coat on. I think he got a mortgage for our house
2: in Ballybuck on on the strength of it. Like you know what I mean? Well, you know you could end up working in Dolphins Barron Fire Station, you can end up working in Dunleary Fire Station. Some <laughs> yes. some of them are easier than others, you know. But he loved it, and it was a great profession, and it had a great culture of all kinds of things like uh, traditional music. Lots of great fellas in in, in the job. Tommy Potts, fiddle player. Uh, Dan Dowd, piper. Great culture of JA as well. You know, um, the great Charlie Redmond, you know Dublin hero from the 95 team. There's always been lots going on within that job. Lots of community and lots of different things. So that was a great, that was almost like a second family growing up. You know, it was so, they were so close-knit. And that's definitely what got me into a lot of, into a lot of history.
1: Yeah, and it kind of it rolls off your heart as you say it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not an
2: academic thing for you, it seems. It's, yeah, it's the real life of the city. Every time I walk down a street in Dublin, I'm just thinking, who lives here? Or who worked here Or why is this street Even called what it is I find that really interesting Yeah my brother was in Prague uh, The other
1: day And he was looking around In awe of the city And I was saying That happens to people When they go to our city Yeah It just doesn't totally. happen
2: There was as much Because we walk down the street Every day So we kind
1: of Yeah yeah, away, yeah yeah Whatever I've started falling fall in love With all the shores Yeah You know the coverings The big manhole coverings, Because there's, there's so many of them Was
2: different I had an idea for a project Actually to screen print them And turn oh, them brilliant. into t-shirts Like you know brilliant. Some of them are, are, are brilliant But yeah. you forget like Sometimes you're walking through Dublin and you're walking over the puddle, the river puddle. We don't see it because it's underneath us. But like, the name of the city comes from, Dublin, you know, where the, the Liffey and the puddle meet. So what's underneath you when you're walking around this town is is amazing. And street names are just are just great. Like uh, I walk down one every day, uh, Shrodnickwerock, which means Sheep Street, but it's become Ship Street. And that's just because oh, yeah. how we how we talk, you know, over time. And was that because it was
1: anglicized? Is that that what happened
2: there? Yeah, well like medieval times there was literally sheep on the street and now now it's somehow become Ship Street nowhere near the Liffey so the way these names change and evolve over time Nassau Street, you know House of Orange, Nassau King William of Orange not the most popular man in Irish history. And we have a street named after him in the middle of town. And we don't Nassau mind street. because we don't associate it with... Yeah, here. exactly. If it was you a street I mean? in town called William of Orange Street, I mean, the fucking street signs wouldn't last a day, you know. Yeah, there'd, be <laughs> pro- there'd be protests there. <laughs> be paint-bombed. But Nassau, House of Orange, Nassau, oh, fucking nobody knows what it means, just leave it. So when you when you dig into these everyday things, like just the names of streets and the rivers below us, and uh, it's amazing when you look up and look down. And how far do you go back or do you, do you just skip around? You know what I mean? Uh, I kind of... Love the 20th century because there's a living memory of it, you know, so people can talk to their their ma's, their grannies, and the 20th century is just part of us, you know, We, we it, it's a living history. People always say to me, the podcast doesn't really go back that far, and you kind of go 18th, 19th, 20th century, because I find it very hard to bring something like Viking Dublin to life. It's so far removed from us, and if you're dealing with the 20th century, the sound, so you're talking about someone, and then you can just play a clip of them, and it's amazing that you're able to dig into these archives Uh, and just find those you know if you do I did an episode on Seamus Ennis who was an amazing piper and uh, he was known as on Farkeol the music man and it's one thing talking about this guy but then you fucking play it you know and people are listening to the podcast and they hear him play the pipes three or four times so the 20th century because so much of it survives interviews music Documentaries, audio, all that good stuff that you swipe when you're doing a podcast. And That's it's just all about Dublin, Dublin or the people that lived in Dublin to do their history. All Dublin. And I think what's so weird is that I don't understand why someone in Cork or Galway or Belfast doesn't do the same thing. I think every city and town in this world. Yeah, Blind Boy kind of does it for Limerick. A little bit, yeah. A little yeah. bit. I think I think if Blind Boy was to do like a Limerick local history kind of offset thing, you know, from his main project, that'd be fascinating because he knows the people, and he does. yeah, and
1: and certain people do for Ireland, like for Manicón, um, oh, Manicón, like does like, the book, holy wells and all that, that, that type book of stuff. Is like
2: wild, you know, That'll blow your head speak. open. You, like yeah. you went down
1: mushrooms when you got into it's like that like being
2: book. An it's like, it's but he's saying like, like, that these the these dolmens yeah, and the, <laughs> these wishing yeah. wells,
1: holy wells, are portals into yeah our
2: mystical, mythical. Uh, archetypal history And let's be honest Most dubs have never been further Than fucking leak slips So when you're, <laughs> you're reading Manicom McGann Right about the ancient wells yeah. of Ireland, It blows your mind It totally changed The way I thought about The, the rural landscape and, and, and I think He's the kind of person That makes you want to get out there And see all these what different things It changed things. my
1: I remember growing up And I thought like Coo Yeah Was a dude yeah, you know what I mean folklore mythology and, you could, well, and I, I, couldn't, separate, GBO, you I couldn't separate in my head and, and it was beautiful and then as I got older the kind of separation happened but he gets rid of the separation Fact and folklore and where they all
2: meet but like the, that, the, the fairies
1: the, and all this it's fucking
2: real when man, he, man, he, when man he man does God it Michael McGann's thing has registered so like that book is fucking flying all year it's just been flying that's and the one he has 30 the, names for a field yeah this was listen to the land speak and yeah it's just very very good for people to get into the countryside and just Submerge themselves in it because it's not that far away. It really isn't. Like I used to, I lived in 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 Kimmage for years. in Kimmage, Crumlin. The fucking mountains were in the distance. You could see them. You were going into town, but the other way was the mountains. Yeah, and that proximity that we have, we're surrounded. Mm-hmm. Dublin, like Belfast, is surrounded
0: by. Do you do a? Uh, do you do much dig in to much history on uh, say musicians now, for instance?
2: Yeah, and uh, oh, my dad grew up in. In, Ballier, in Ballyferma had a great tradition of traditional music. Yes, Actually, a lot of it from the Traveller community, a lot of Pipers from the Traveller community. And that right. was one of the great memories he had, was the sound of the oil pipes uh, from the site there. So, trad music especially, because that's just an incredible culture that sustains its own history, if that makes sense. You know, if people learn a song from their father who learned it from his father who yeah, learned it from course. his father. Well, we, have, we have the stronghold, the Pipers bar, yeah. In town, like yeah. live now in Dublin, there's a bar for piping. That's an amazing thing to have. And uh, the cobblestone, uh, cobblestone, like it's it's a weird thing. It's a brilliant pub. It's also become kind of a tourist attraction, which isn't its own fault. It's just so good that, you know, everyone, when, when, when we go on holidays, what do we want? We want to find something authentic. The problem is eventually you end up at somewhere where there's just a load of people looking for something authentic and there isn't yeah. something authentic. And sometimes the cobblestone has that feeling you walk in, there's so many tourists in it. Other times you walk in and it's magic. And when it's good, it's
1: bloody good. There's nowhere quite like it in the country. There's a pub I go to before Damo in the Ivy Gardens gigs yeah, and it's just on a corner of Leeson street and it's a little outflow pub, I forget the name of it but it's like that. There's just magic in it. Yeah. There's nothing on the floor and that's what you want but the tourists haven't
2: gotten onto it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the, I mean? the Piper's Corner is the same. I haven't, I haven't quite found it yet but the, that's Seamus Ennis. The Piper is on the side of that pub and uh, going back to like yeah, Ballyferm it sounds like it was a magic place at that time. You had Liam Weldon who was a great collector of uh, Traveller songs Smuggling the Tin Great song And he was a fantastic voice And it was just buzzing It was this new suburb you know, He was born in 59 Balliour was kind of laid out in the 50s It kind of felt like it was the middle of nowhere It was known colloquially as Ballyfar out Bally far away we, we be, call it <laughs> <Bally far>
1: away <laughs> <laughs> People thought it was the middle of nowhere When I'm talking to some Traveller lads Especially young fellas I say do you know the Peck are And they're like no we haven't, we haven't heard of him And I played a bit of the Peck are And they go yeah that's nice But I... I've just fallen in love with that It's probably one of the reasons If I trace it back That I'm doing a podcast with Martin That I just fell in awe With the the, the oral tradition The culture The people That's kind of been airbrushed away You know what I mean no. I remember uh, I was, me and Dame had an old swim down the Dolly Mount and we parked off and we got a bit of food and we got back in the car and uh, he said, do you mind if I play an old song? And he stuck on Chris and Stevie and it was I was fucking full of every emotion you can imagine. Joy, wonder, sadness, sorrow. With oh, his own song, yeah. With his own song and it, I'm thinking about releasing this song. I was smiling, two of us were
0: smiling and full of tears at exactly the same time and I think that that's what that does. It's great how people put, uh, put these into songs because... They mightn't be able to. Uh, they mightn't just be able to sit down and talk that. Yeah, yeah. Where they can have the time they to uh, sit down, they like say write it up, and it's obviously come from themselves, and then put it into a song. Yeah. So it's there for them just to even reflect back on it if they want to. But to sit down with somebody else and just to talk that song out, they might not be able to do that. I'm not saying they wouldn't. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The chances are that the public they wouldn't know. Uh, they mightn't express it as well are as good as it actually can through a song. Yeah. Because I, um, I think by uh, through a song, not only the words, they're pouring emotions on top of it as well. Totally. So it makes the whole thing seem better, like for some reason or Uh, another.
2: People call those gigs like, oh, I'm going to the church of Damo. People are like quasi religious about those Christmas gigs in Vicar Street. I don't think you can think
1: it's quasi religious. I think it's religious. (laughs) It goes bigger than that. Yeah. It's a spiritual experience. It breaks the roof of the church off. off, You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We fly together. I've never got that experience in a church where I'm flying with the congregation. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Unless the. Priest is on yokes or something but like I'd,
2: that. I'd love to do a history of Dublin in maybe 10 or 12 songs. Do you know, you would take songs from history that tell the story of the city and, and, and do it that way. And I think definitely there's a number of Damien Dempsey songs. Well, Damien was doing that, uh, that exact same thing is, in yeah. the Abbey Theatre in
1: January, February, which is his songs and his history and the history of those songs. But I see yeah.
2: where you're going. You could do a history of Ireland or a history of Dublin True songs. Yeah, and you know, Lazarus Soul, and I've seen Lazarus Soul across the street uh, in the Axis. They have a great song called Long Balconies and it's about the the flats in town, the Herbert Sims, the 1930s.
1: I remember when my ma was on and Martin was talking to her and he was fascinated by the buildings and the tenements and he wanted
2: to know more and more and I was thinking in the back of my head, I'll get Donald on. One yeah. time. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, Damien, I think, Ghosts of Overdoses, I think that's an amazing song. And that's something that was, I mean, you too touched on that actually in early songs like Bad... But you can't really talk about Dublin social history without that time, you know, that the addiction. Yeah, they the kinda skipped of over a little on, bit. They on,
1: done on I Dublin. seen Seven Towers and I Seen No Way Out. And it was alluded to, but didn't yeah. really delve into it.
2: But that song, "Ghost of Overdoses, is it's an amazing piece of work there. I don't know if he does it live that often, but uh He done Factories And Factories is another great night. song, another really powerful song. And yeah, I mean the good, the bad and the ugly of Dublin is, is in those songs. I was thinking, uh, and uh, I might link in with somebody to try and...
1: You might actually help me uh, write this, is uh, IRA the musical. It's a history <laughs> of, of <laughs> republicanism in Ireland with uh, with songs.
2: Dave Savage <laughs> would have a song going, IRA, IRA, well,
1: plant the bombs and
2: run away. But, do you uh, remember Ding Dong Denny O'Reilly? He was a parody fake folk singer and he had a couple of great songs. One of them was The Crack We Had the Day We Died for Ireland and another one was uh, <laughs> Them Potatoes Aren't Looking Too Good <laughs> the famine. but he had one called Spitting the Brits and I think it was inspired by Dickie Rock because you know women used to Spitting to Dickie yeah, yeah. and, and throw their knickers up on stage but he put on a raincoat <laughs> and he'd say you know I'm now the embodiment of the British Empire and people can come up and spit in me if they want <laughs> and people would they got about the crowd to do it but oh, Ding Dong Danny okay. O'Reilly so if you're doing a, a, a Republican musical uh, you'll have to get one of his satirical songs in there Um during the recession he came back and he did a new tune that was called uh, I suppose a riot's out of the question
1: <laughs> I suppose like, I, I suppose, suppose a riot riot's out, of out the question, question. Said, why don't you riot
2: and he said like you did when Henri touched the ball in Paris was the nearest just came to a riot oh lovely <laughs> so Ding Dong Denny has to go in there but yeah I mean the, the the idea of of song and using song as the central way of telling history is really fascinating isn't it so who's the
0: main who's uh, the who's the main Musicians on the scene now, we say in Dublin, because yeah, apart from say them with they also with them in Dempsey, but like you had the Dubliners are, then you had the Furies,
2: yeah, yeah, the well, Ramblers. We, we say, no Ramblers,
0: we say we look, we had Luke Kelly, basically, they were all like absolutely brilliant.
2: weren't. Yeah. I think when Ted Fury died, that who's, was the who's taking over all of this now at this stage? The banner was a uh, hell hath no fury like Ted, but nowadays, I think in North Circular, that new documentary, you, you see these emerging talents that are there. And there's uh, John Francis Flynn, fantastic singer. Uh, Lisa O'Neill from Cavan originally. But she has a song about containerization and the death of the docks uh, called Rock the Machine. You know, the machine that took the jobs of of, of men. You know, we'll rock the machine. And early, where from? she's from Cavan, I know, isn't she? Yeah, living in Dublin. And, and oh, right. John Francis Flynn will be in Dublin. But there is this emerging scene, yeah. But is there
0: something about... Um
2: but maybe it's a emergent. Maybe it was always is there, there, was about,
0: there. Is there something about, uh, say, these four or five lads together, maybe sometimes three lads, and these, uh, let's say, these big heavy beards? Yeah, yeah. And these uh, this nice heavy Dublin voice. And the Aaron Gansy's. There's something special about the whole thing in there. Oh, there is, yeah.
2: There's something the whole thing together, the whole scene, if you like. And I think, like, that documentary. Luke McManus made I don't think he intended to make a musical documentary Right? I think it was meant to be just a documentary with the North Circle Road but music became such a feature of it and actually the the subtitle is a musical journey so music has that power that you may not intend for it to be the central character but it often it often becomes it I find that with the pod like when you the only one on a singer or or a musician you give them the space and you just play the clips and you let them speak for themselves so yeah it's one of those things it's one of those things
1: we're a great country for Talking about the stuff like Brendan Bean's uh old Triangle or yeah. you know what I mean, or Borsel Boy, or talking about some of the stuff that we're not ready to talk about uh, you know, in conversation. We might talk about through song or through theatre or Yeah, you know, and we Bren- reference we Brendan w- is
2: uh, is a hundred on the ninth of February. Oh, is he, yeah? Yeah, yeah. He was born on the ninth of February, nineteen twenty three. And the the story is that Brendan Bean first saw his father through the prison bars that Kathleen brought him down to come jail. Stephen was in prison at the time. And shout up, Stephen! Stephen, there's your son. And, you know, he looked out the prison bars and he and he saw Brendan on the on the other side. But that's an, uh, something I hope we can really. We still have a couple of weeks to get something together. Well, it's, for, it's for, interesting, for Brendan, you know,
1: because my the way I see it is that uh, you know what Brendan done in this country hasn't really been appreciated in terms of what he wrote about prison and what he wrote about homosexuality yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah, 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 totally. And you know, we're great at doing. Uh, pride in this country but not necessarily linking it back to those times where you could literally get hung yeah. you know what I mean yeah. or, 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 or as I was explaining to Martin Sunday the other day it was kind of the social history of homophobia in Ireland is really interesting up until 1993 it was a, a jailable
2: offence yeah he's the son of a house painter who becomes a house painter very poorly uh, falls into revolutionary politics as a boy like he's literally writing poems Republican poems at 9, 10, 11 years of age goes to Britain in the disastrous IRA bombing campaign. In the 30s, the IRA start bombing British cities, Coventry, London, Liverpool. No strategy, no great plan what they're doing. They're just bombing the Brits because you have to bomb the Brits. That's, that's it the was, it, was it just
1: something to do after the civil war?
2: I suppose that by the 30s, morale is very low and they declare war on the British in 1939. <laughs> Britain was otherwise engaged in a bigger war. But young Brendan Behan working class inner city Dublin or in Liverpool with a suitcase of explosives to blow up the Liverpool docks, put into prison. And that's really transformative because he meets young English men in prison, like himself in some ways. And he discovers, I suppose, that there's a common commonality that these kids from Manchester and Liverpool and Salford are no different from him. And he begins to question the world in that way, you know. Uh, geez, I was trying to blow up these people last week, you know, and I'm sitting in Borstal with them. And as he says himself, he's more in common with a working class kid from Manchester than he has with a big Gombean farmer at home. So for him, it was a extraordinary time. And look, the stuff that he produced about being in prison. What's the boy, it's amazing. And you're right, the the kind of the 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 bisexuality of Brendan Bean is a big part of that story too. He's a he's a really curious man. He's a really strange character, isn't he? Yeah, I
0: don't I don't it's know if, if if
1: he's strange. I think that he was just he was who he was. He was honest yeah. with it. You know what I mean? It's strange of us to probably think he was anything other than what he was. Yeah. You know, we have this image, you know, he was a rider, he was a drinker, he was a smoker, he was quick-witted, he was intelligent. A he writer was, and a rider. He was heterosexual. <laughs> you, yeah, not it, yeah. it doesn't, you know what I mean? He also, he, he also liked to, to lie with men. He liked to lie with women. He liked to... He liked the intimacy. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of
2: lose that, I, I think, a little bit. But he didn't I mean? hate Britain, you know, which is the amazing thing. Like he, he, for someone who was, you know, over there as a young Republican volunteer, like he, he knew his Shakespeare like the back of his hand and, and his his mother would just bring the kids around town apparently, just walked them around town all day. That was Oscar Wilde's house or that was Yates' house or, you know, fed them with stuff and poems and music and, and, and story. And they were little performers, Brendan and all his brothers, even as kids, they just absorbed the energy of of culture from their from their mom so it's such a waste I mean he's in his 40s when he dies Brendan Behan and he doesn't really he doesn't write all that much he reminds is, me a little bit of Bill Hicks the comedian yeah. kind of similar you know what I mean yeah he doesn't leave a massive legacy of work because unfortunately the last decade was just drowned in drink so the last couple of Brendan Behan books are very bad they're like Brendan Behan's New York and he's basically pissed in New York and he's dictating anecdotes to someone else for a book uh, Brendan Behan's Island terrible book about Ireland. But the stuff that he wrote in his youth when he was when he was on, when he was good, it's just amazing stuff. Bursle Boy's the best... Kind of memoir. reminds
1: me of Dempsey, because Dempsey went to New York and he could have drank himself into a corner over there. Oh, easily. Because yeah. he, he went there down, in, yeah. his, say, his 20s and he had written some of his, like, factories and all that, you know, in and yeah. around that time and he could have easily, not just Damien, but any kind of, you know, anybody. But Damien yeah. went over at that time, hung around in New York, sang in a couple of bars and I was always thinking... Selfishly, I hope we get to keep him. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean.
2: Yeah, I hope. Uh, I hope it's not a tragic story here. So much genius has drowned in booze. And uh, Joan Littlewood who was a theatre director who put on a lot of Brendan's stuff. When Brendan died, she said, "I went to Dublin to kick the coffin because I was so I was so angry. That's such a great talent I'd put itself into the ground at what forty in like, his forties. Like a self destruction thing, like was it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he he, he couldn't tame us, you know."
1: I was thinking last night, I came up with a phrase, it sounds like, you know, it could be true, that pubs sell silence, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. There there is the crack
2: and the buzz there, but there's also the silence, the quiet, the don't talk about the darkness, and there's a couple of great memoirs of that time uh, when Bean was on the scene. One fellow wrote a book, John Ryan, called Remembering How We Stood," which is a pretty ironic title, because Remembering How We Fell Down would be a better title for that book. It's mostly about drinking in Dublin... At that time, the kind of post-World War II, Bohemians, the 40s, the 50s. And the drinking was unbelievable. Like it was just, it didn't stop, you know. And then you have another guy, Tony Cronin, who survived because he gave up the drink. He wrote a book called Dead as Doornails. And it's about Flann O'Brien, Paddy Cavanagh and Behan. And his interactions with all three as drinkers. It's extraordinary. These people just hit well, what was that, What point. was the cause
0: of the drinking? Was it poverty or depression or what was going on with them? I think the pulp... Lack of a word for yeah,
2: what? For them, it was McDade's. McDade's was just the centre of their world and it just became the place that every writer went. And I think it was Ego. I think that these were all writers competing for the same column in just, you know, the same space, the same awards. And they just developed this very messy, dangerous friendship slash rivalry between this generation of writers. And they just idolised Drink. They just thought Drink was... It was so romantic. So J.P. Dunleavy is an American. He He's a, a soldier who's in the Second World War. And after the war, he's allowed to study in, in, in Trinity College. There's a thing called the GI Bill. The, the Americans kind of wanted their soldiers in Europe, someone to stay there. So they give them money to go to university. He writes a book called The Ginger which is just an amazing tale of drunken debauchery, sex, everything it was banned. The censor at the time was probably right about the book. They were banning things for far less. Uh, but the culture of of drinking in the 40s and 50s in Dublin was just out of control, and drink was proportionately a lot cheaper than it is now too. So you could drink yourself into a into a stupor on the regular uh, on the, on a poet's wage. You know, it costs a lot of money to get pissed in this town now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was out last night and I went into a bar yeah.
2: beside Vickers tree
1: and uh, cocaine was the order of the day. Yeah. Oh my God, I like it's not something. It's not on my. Uh, it's not on my radar. It's not on my palette. Yeah. You know what I mean.
2: Like well, a, price, a pint has, has, has gone towards six and sometimes over six euros in the in the city. Yeah, yeah. extraordinary. So yeah, the days of uh, sitting in McDade and drinking twenty pints of Paddy Cavan are definitely are definitely over. You're right about Coke. I've noticed that too, and I don't I don't like Coke. I don't like the energy of that. Drug. I don't like the energy of it. I went into a bar and I seen one fella who I knew, uh,
1: and he wasn't on it. And he kind of looked at me, gave me a hug, and then he looked around, going, "This place is fucking nuts, in it?" Yeah. And there is a kind of there's a new social thing that's happening in Dublin uh, post-Covid where it's just like it's snowing every fucking night in every pub <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fascinating like yeah. you know what I mean and I just I wonder where we'll be in 20 years what will we be writing about or will it just be a blur because I know that the kind of ecstasy era of the 80s and 90s there's not so much written about it it's kind of a bit of a blur, like, you know what I
2: mean? Yeah, yeah, that'd be a great... Uh, yeah. I've kind of dallied with the idea doing a podcast episode on the asylum, which was... Oh, my God, yeah, which was like a rave. Sackville place. A rave off of Holland Street. Street. Yeah, that became the most notorious nightclub in the city. And I think the, the earlier clubs than that, like you had Flickers, which was in the Hirschfeld Centre, that was kind of electronic disco vibe. That came out of the gay movement, and that was a very. They would they were would say like, oh, if a record takes off in New York City, you can hear it. You can hear it in two weeks in flickers. You know, it was kind of the disco vibe and feel good and connected to the kind of gay rights movement. Uh, but the asylum, when it came along, was just constant negative press coverage, and there's a couple of overdoses there. Ecstasy wasn't really understood. It was a new. It, it came here quite late, actually, compared to in Britain. I think pills were like. Fifteen pounds at one point, or twenty pounds. To the
1: at breath. a certain point, towards the end, Which and is... and the asylum was towards the end. The social history of the asylum is it was towards the end. It was towards the greedier end of of
2: that kind of era. You know? Which is amazing and no water and just kids. Just
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they just... turned the, they turned the water off notoriously in the temple temple theatre. Yeah, it's amazing stuff, isn't
2: it? And and even chatting to Billy about about that history, like he talks about. When the when when the drugs thing was at its height, you'd, you'd have people outside some venues, like abusing people going into going into nights, you know, fucking junkies, all this kind of stuff about about, about ecstasy. But the 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 asylum had constant negative press, worse than anything I've I've, I've seen. In you'd have variety. drunken
1: people falling out of pubs, slagging off teenagers, <laughs> doing pills. It's yeah, yeah, it's,
2: it's interesting. Yeah, and I think that'd be really interesting to look at some of those clubs, like the sides, the Temple of Sound, the Hirschfeld Center, the Asylum. But yeah, the asylum really terrified people. And even the, the branding of the club was quite kind of satanic. Yeah. Well it was a fucking asylum. Yeah, it kind of looked like a goth music venue. It didn't look like a like an electronic music venue. But I'm really interested in the history of those clubs and, and how people uh, engage with them. You know, the Hirschville Center, Flickers disco Well, where's the Her- oh, I don't know what that. Flicker's is the Dutch word for, for faggots. So they kind of yeah. took it and reinvented it, you know. And uh Flickers was the Herschel Centre was on on Found Street, it's now Tola Vintage near McDonald's in Temple Bar but the oh, I Oh I know what you're talking about yeah. The Hirschfield was a gay political centre community centre but Flickers the disco was what brought most people in the door and apparently it was just electronic music like this had never been heard in Dublin before for many people it was their musical awakening There was a place in Dublin that I used to go to when I was like 15, 16 and it was
1: called the Well Fed Cafe have you come across that?
2: Yeah that was on that was in Temple Bar Where It was, was in
1: Temple Bar I think it was like Crow Crow Street, Street. yeah yeah but it was this place you could go. There was art on the walls, and they put food in your belly for nothing. They had big pots basically, yeah. And you just walked up the stairs, and there was always something on a stew or rice dish or something like that. And it was like the the starting of Temple Bar. What you know, where, yeah. where Temple Bar is now it was a million miles away from
2: there. It was real community, so and Temple Bar culture. Was bohemian. It was kind of countercultural. It was a bit weird. Uh, lots of secondhand shops little record shops. When you read the papers on Temple Bar in the early days, they wanted it to be kind of Dublin's left bank. That was the idea that was there. And important. Like the Hirschford Centre is important. The Irish Film Institute when it comes along was important. Because that was the kind of cinema that wasn't getting a, a fair hearing. You know, you couldn't walk into a mainstream cinema and see half those movies because they were banned for one reason. Yeah, the project is in there. The project, yeah. Jim and Peter Sheridan took the project. and Peter Sheridan had a great line about the project. He so said, we'd no money but we'd punk rock attitude. And they're putting on amazing gigs and plays, like Samuel Beckett plays that no one had ever bothered putting on here before. And Bertolt Brecht, German playwright, they're putting on weird stuff. But Temple Bar had this energy of being something on the edge, something different. And now you walk through it, and it's like, what is it anymore? It's how, like every night, it's Saturday night in Temple Bar this year, tourists. Yeah, that's
1: why I was kind of saying earlier on. It's it's kind of like tourists and snow,
2: tourists yeah. and cocaine, tourists and expensive points. Yeah, or expensive meals. 50 and 80 for two points, apparently, in, in one of those establishments. When I go to a Temple Bar nowadays, I just don't f- know what it is. I don't, what is the feeling of Temple Bar, you know? And the Huffington Post in America, they called it one of the 10 most disappointing places in the world, and maybe it is. You know, maybe it is, and Irish people don't really socialise there, which is mad. So it's just, going back to that point you made earlier, when people go on holidays, they want to find the authentic thing. It's just full of people looking for authenticity but they're not going to find it there standing on corners looking for that thing yeah and they
1: don't realize it's two streets over in Bleed and Talbot street or something like that yeah, you know exactly. what i mean yeah 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 uh, yeah so something i wanted to cover with you was it's 2022 2023 we're 100 years since civil war yeah it's something that like Martin was asking uh, there earlier on why is there a lot of drinking in Ireland and I think part of it has got to do with civil war and the stuff that went on in this country that we kind of brush underneath the carpet and I was watching Brendan Gleeson's uh, narration of the civil war on RTE it like three episodes yeah. I was sitting there with me man and Dan it was just really nice pieces in it and one of the bits that stood out to me and I had a conversation with my dad was and I didn't know my dad knew this was about the blue shorts and fascists and uh, coming to Gale and all that type of stuff and then we would start talking about you know what's going on in East Wall and refugees and all that type of stuff but I was just yeah I really liked his summary of that period uh, because if if not for that, what other way do we know about it? What other way are we talking about it? or celebrating um, or not not
2: necessarily celebrating, but just even discussing yeah. it around the bleeding the kitchen table? Well it's tough because up to this point we've had this thing called the Decade of Centenaries now. Since about twenty thirteen, we've been marking big historical anniversaries. And until this year, they were pretty much all things we were on the same side over. You <laughs> know? So we'd nineteen thirteen and we were the hundredth anniversary of Larkin and we yo, know, I remember twenty thirteen there was a lot of talk about unions and workers' rights and all of that. The Easter Rising. I mean, we remember what the Rising was like, the centenary in 2016. It was massive for communities. I remember the the beautiful mural on the, the shopping centre next door, you know. Uh, there was a real feeling in, in Dublin, especially in working-class Dublin in 2016, that there was a positive thing that came out of that centenary and it was about identity and it was about, you know, civic republicanism and the ideas of 1916. and The women really came true. That was one the, of the, the, the strong teams of the 1916 100th anniversary. Then the War of Independence uh, with big days like, you know, the 100th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And that was a bit of a pity because, you know, with COVID, the stadium was empty. But you still had very powerful commemorations and the, 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 the torches on the hill for those who were murdered that day. So up until this point, we were all commemorating things that we kind of broadly agreed on. And the Decade of Centenaries was a very good thing in that sense. But now we're into something which is very contested, you know, which is the Civil War. And it's, in fairness to that documentary, Gleason's uh, narration, that documentary, they didn't hide the dirty stuff. You know, they spoke about the good and the bad and the ugly of the tale. And I think the people that lived through that Civil War, one, they didn't think it was going to happen. So, yeah, people had taken different sides on the treaty, they'd fallen out with each other. But like the IRA, for example, marched into the forecourts on, along the keys and Uh, When they're in that building, when they occupy that building, some of them, Ernie O'Malley and uh, Sean McBride, every day they went for coffee in Bewley's. They just walked out of a building that was occupied, went for coffee, came back again. So they didn't expect it to come down to it. Then the Free State, using borrowed 18-pounder guns from the British, opened fire on the forecourts. And I think that generation of people felt, we never thought it would come to this, but it had and it's brutal. It's more brutal. More people lose their lives than in the, the War of Independence before it. Uh, it totally divides people on a family basis. Some you know, You've got brothers who take up arms against each other. You've got this unbelievable moment where Kevin O'Higgins, government minister, signs the execution papers for, for a man who was best man at his own wedding. Can you imagine putting into the grave the best man at your own wedding? Erskine Childers. So that's a brutality it's vicious, and it's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as civil. It's like friendly fire, you know? Civil war. It's, in, in the Irish language, they sometimes call it Cugna na, na the war of the brothers, Cugna carra, the war of the friends, but there's very little friendly about it. As I was saying at the start, I think
1: that that's part of our history that's yeah. shadow or hidden or
2: too dark of a cave to go in and, you yeah, know, and, and explore. Yeah, and what they achieved, right? They achieved something. They got an, a free state when you're fighting a revolution, you fight it on a massive slogan. So the big slogan in Ireland, if you walk down a street in Dublin in 1919, if you walk down a street in Cork in 1920, the slogan that was written on every wall was up the Republic, which is a big slogan, up the Republic. Up the flats. Like no one writes, (laughs) yeah, no one was shouting up the 26 county Irish free state with dominion status within the British Empire. You know, what they got wasn't the great dream that they wanted, but it was still an achievement. And afterwards, I think some of them felt, you know, Kevin O'Higgins had a great line. He said, we were the most conservative people Whoever had a successful revolution, he thought what they got was fine. But other people, I mean, we were talking about the Abbey earlier on, we am talking about having his play in the Abbey. Helena Maloney, who was an actor in the Abbey, I mean, she was left-wing, she was someone who'd been involved in the women's movement, the labour movement, and she didn't recognise the state as, you know, the achievement of the revolution. And she had a beautiful line, she said, we saw a vision of Ireland, pure, happy and free. We didn't achieve it, but we saw it. And we left the travellers so, out. So she she felt like the world was going to be transformed by the Irish Revolution. And that's just not what happened. So it looks pretty dull and grey, Ireland, in the 20s and 30s. And we left the travellers so, out. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and I'm saying that again yeah. because,
1: you know, like Martin's in the room and yeah. part of our history
2: at that time uh, was the airbrushing of the travellers. Oh, completely. Completely, yeah. And I suppose the the state, when it's born... Uh, it's obsessed with a couple of things. One thing it's obsessed with is property ownership. So the new state, the free state, the first housing scheme they build is Merino in the 20s. And it's tenant purchase. And what that means is they basically want the people to get those houses, to own those houses. And as far as they're concerned, they're, they're making a property-owning population. That was the dream. That they were going to move everyone up the social ladder. So, so is that the first time that that kind of idea had come into Ireland? Yeah, that tenant purchase idea—that these these are going to be, this isn't public house. This, these will be property owning people. You know, what was the real idea for that? The obsession. I think it was ideal, I think it was ideal. I think the the fathers of the first state, people like Cosgrave and Kevin O'Higgins, they were deeply conservative people, and I think they just want us. I suppose they 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 one they were, they were I think uh, they were kind of frightened of organized labor and, and the working movement, the working class movement. But two, I think they wanted to create a middle class society, and they felt that property ownership. Was a, was a core part of, of that. So, it's not until the 30s. And in fairness to Fianna Fáil, right, Yeah, you know, my granddad would have said they're a bunch of bastards, but there are a bunch of bastards. <laughs> Fianna Fáil had a big support in in, in working-class Dublin for a long time because they built public housing. They built... They had support here in Ballymone in all, the in the 70s and 80s. Support, enormous support. And Ballyfermus, Cabra, Crumlin, Kimmage, you know... As did the Labour Party. Go on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, the when of Falcon with the power in the 30s they take a different approach to housing they build a lot of working class housing on both sides of the river in a, big, in a big concerted way but the first government like Merino on one level it worked but on another level it was tenant purchase the rents were too high so that meant the masses of people who were living in the tenements could never even dream of living in them one newspaper said it was the aristocracy of labour so it was Guinness workers and it was people with good regular jobs who got those houses and it's funny that that's one of the first things they did isn't it? the new state that they they go straight in with that idea of the tenant purchase of making good property Martin owners. asked
1: me yesterday we were driving uh, around the city and I was showing him where I used to live down in Ballybock uh, when my parents pulled out of Ballymone in the late 80s early 90s when heroin started to grip and my dad decided I'm going to you know go back to the fold he's from yeah. town he's from Sherry Street and he was going what's the obsession with home ownership
2: Amongst yeah. you know, country people, sell people, and I think a lot of people in this country don't want to own property. No, you know, I've no desire to own property, but the reason people end up going for houses in this country is because they're terrified of the rental market, which is completely unregulated. Uh, you know, you. But is, it,
0: is the is the rental is the rental
2: market just like this now for the past couple of years? I think it's always been chaotic, and I think the the rise of Dublin you know, post-Celtic Tiger or, you know, the tech rise of Dublin, that there's a lot of... Whenever you hear of a company relocating to Dublin, and after Brexit, there's a lot of that. People wanted to stay in the European market, they wanted to stay in an English-speaking economy, they wanted to stay in the same time zone as London. A lot of labour moved from Britain into Ireland after Brexit. Where do you house those people? You know, every time I hear about a, a new company opening up in the docks of Dublin, I think, like, where are they going to live? I mean, there's talk about Google building apartments for their own workers. There are people jokingly call them the, the Google ghetto because they can't find apartments to put these
1: I was in Google where uh, a, a mate of mine is, you know, has quite a reputable job in there. Yeah. And I went and talked to him. Ar- around the time I was doing Apollo House and I was going, lads, you are causing a lot of this fucking uh, stress on the on the on the market. Yeah. yeah uh, homelessness, basically. You know what I mean? Because you are acting as a magnet in this country for all other services and you're just pulling everything into the centre where the fuck is everyone going to live? Mm. And you, you inevitably, you, you're going to push people who have had social history in Peer's yeah. Tree
2: and blah, 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 out further and further and further. Which yeah, is an, and interesting an extraordinary summary. number of TDs are landlords. Like a massive, massive number of TDs are landlords. And they have to declare their interests. And remember the, the recent nonsense with a TD, couldn't even remember how many investment properties he had. So if people are invested in the crisis... Joe, if you're a, 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 a landlord of multiple properties in a housing crisis, is it in your interest to try and fix that crisis? Maybe it isn't. No, and, look, and,
1: and like like the drug industry, you know what I mean? If you have a product and you reduce its accessibility in yeah. the market, you're going to drive up the prices and you're yeah. going to have people scrambling over each other to get to, to
2: to get the thing that you have. Yeah, so it's... it's. I mean, Rory Ahern, you wrote that great book this year and a great title for a book, Gaffs why no one can afford a house and what we can do about it. It was a great read. And I think one of the things that I I really get from that, and one of the things I feel very strongly, is that I don't want to own a house. I just want to have security in the rental market. So if you live in Berlin, Angela Merkel in Berlin rents her apartment. The former political leader of Germany is a renter. Because renters in that city, you've got so much guarantee of the right to stay and rent increases... Only in line with inflation over time. Here, you just someone can ring you and say, "Oh, the rent's up 400 quid next month." You're like, "Why?
1: How?" But there's a there's a history <laughs> of uh, The field, the bull McCabe, the yeah. land. You know what I mean? Which I think has been the story. Had that, of that has been weaved into get your foot on the property
2: ladder and and that myth. History of people that were dispossessed of land. Does yep. that
0: does that mean then that people are being forced into buying houses? and
2: Great question. Maybe by certain rules. I think the fear of the rental market is forcing people in and I, I, I have a lot of friends who be I've be in my early 30s but friends that are maybe 10 years older than me and in their 40s they really start to panic and they're like okay so will I ever be able to retire? Do you know? Because of mortgages like this. Yeah, exactly and will like, I get a mortgage and am I too late for a mortgage? This so fear yeah, this I think fear is the motivating The fear and fact. the pressure that puts on people oh, It's amazing people getting yourself on that ladder for some people it's meant to be this great, you know, moment of um, progression or whatever. You know, for many people it's like having a baby, it's like something that they really aspire towards. But it's just become a horrible stress-filled thing and it's not nice. And bidding wars, I find that amazing that they haven't regulated that. If me and you walk into centre across the street and there's you know, we both want to get a two-litre bottle of coke, and there's one of them left, and it's two fifty. Well, I think whoever gets to the till first with the two fifty gets a bottle of coke. But with the housing market now, it's like, oh no, 320, 380. Yeah. 420, yeah, 450. In... Like, how's that even allowed? You know, in 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 the Scottish market, I was chatting to someone who lives in Edinburgh. He was saying, you put a house on the market at a price. Someone offers the price, and the house is sold at that price. But here, it's like the wild west. It's just like this culture of bidding wars, and
1: it's a kind of a mixture of greed and insecurity. It's a perfect soup for uh, <laughs> speculators. You yeah, know what I mean? For yeah. people to pour honey into your ears and sell you a myth. Get the get the house. Get the yeah. mortgage work in your, you know, in your job as a civil servant until you're 60, get the pension and retire with the grandkids.
2: Yeah. It's a lovely story. If you're lucky, or 67 now, 60 whatever, it'll be come in time. But it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely come from the deep uncertainty people have the rental market is driving the chaos, I think, of the panic, the bidding wars around housing. And some of these houses, like, they were built in the, 19, the, the 1930s. Herbert Sims was the, the city housing architect. He built Thousands upon thousands of houses across working class Dublin. These are nineteen thirties council houses, and now people are having crazy bidding wars, and they're going for over four hundred thousand euros. Like it's, it's nuts. yes
1: yeah, so I was looking at a video this morning of um, Dole TV, and it's ten years uh, our ten year anniversary since uh, me and you sat down and we had a similar conversation. Um, and you were kind of like a younger, um, <coughs> refusing to emigrate. More naive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of like, yeah, just a young, bright penny in, yeah. in
2: Dublin. And, you know, it's been, it's been a, an interesting 10 years for you. Yeah, but you do know, I think we're kind of back where we were then because I've, I remember Dole TV. And at that time, the reason you were doing what you were doing and I was doing what I was doing was there was this feeling of down, the place was down. So many people were, were were leaving, and in some ways, I'm kind of feeling a little bit of that about the city again. Are you? you know, yeah. At the moment, yeah. I mean, even you were saying you're at Vicker Street last night. You know, you're walking through the Liberties now. It's strewn accommodation blocks everywhere, hotels everywhere. Uh, the battles are different, but at the moment, I feel there's there's a lot of this going on in in the city around development, around. Like I said on the way here today, I was at a protest at the Ivy Markets across the street from the Ivy Markets is the old Tivoli Theater, knocked down student accommodation at Pearl Hotel so yeah there's different issues but definitely things feel in some ways similar uh, to, to the days of Dole TV
1: Poverty and the history the social history of places like Henrietta Street which is yeah. an area that
2: you're, you're walking in there now In the it's like the it, it, historical quarter of It's a weird one it's a, it's a 14 Henrietta Street was once upon a time a single family lived there so one family and their staff lived in this house by the time in 1911 census, 100 people lived in the house and 835 people lived on the street and it was probably the most notorious tenement street or one of them in the city. So what they've done with that building, 14 Henrietta Street, which going back 20 years to the time of the conservation report on the street, they actually thought was in danger of collapse. The house was written off by, by many people. But they've reinvented it and you journey through the whole story. So you start off in these beautiful 18th century rooms and you learn about how how the other half lived, you know, and who in was the 18th other century Dublin. Oh, the street was kind of members of the old Irish parliament, fucking rotten, corrupt parliament on college green. You're the Bank of Ireland, so Catholics couldn't vote. Catholics couldn't become parliamentarians. They were about 80% of the population, so that was a problem. So these were, you know? for all intents and purposes, the British. We, we, we like to call them the Anglo-Irish. You know, they lived in this strange world, and these people, developers, barristers, politicians captains of industry. Henrietta Street was laid out basically the first terrace street of its kind in Dublin for that elite. And then the 19th century happens and Dublin goes into this massive decline. And it's a bad time for the city, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But Belfast really takes off. And Belfast had the shipbuilding industry, it had the linen industry. So Belfast became the Irish economic capital. And Dublin is like, they call it Dear Dirty Dublin in the 19th century. So at one
1: time before that, we were like the second port of the British Empire. Yeah. And then then whatever happens, we fall on our arse. uh, The Brits uh,
2: move out, essentially. And then Belfast gets that title. Dublin calls itself the second city of the empire in the 18th century. And then as the 19th century goes on, it's just decay. Decay, rotten decay. And Belfast kind of steals its its, its crown, you know, becomes the, the great industrial city. So Henrietta Street is mad in the sense that these opulent rich houses are the, the tenements of the 19th century. And it's, it's really well done. They tell that story very well and they bring it right up to the last people who lived on that street. Because people only moved out of Henrietta Street in the 1970s. So that's a living memory, you know, it's a living memory. And the history of Henrietta Street and the tenements
1: we were talking about before... Uh, was why we have this community here in Ballymun because the decay was that much that you know they were falling down people were dying and then there was like a cry uh, in the city uh, 1963
2: and they built Ballymun. June 1963 two gaffes fall down in town one on Bolton Street kills two elderly Dubliners and then one on Fenian Street kills two kids just collapsed basically and they just come crashing down apparently the, the the winter had been atrocious before that and the summer was very, very warm, and the fabric of the buildings had just been through the mill, and houses start falling down in the in the summer '63. And Ballymun is kind of a response to that. You know, there's a real panic in the city. We need to do something about this. And they're putting people up in prefabs, and then um, they move people into like the living quarters of fire stations. Anywhere, anywhere that the city can put people, they start putting them. But Ballymun then comes into the, into their heads as this great new town, this great utopian idea. And Ballymun should have worked. Do you know, Ballymun should have... When you what read do you mean the, it did work? When it worked, it, there's a strong community. <laughs> a, there's a great sense of pride, but everything that was promised wasn't delivered. And when you read the early reports on what Ballymun would be, it was meant to be a satellite town. It was meant to be a self-sustaining town near the city. But most of the amenities were, were never granted. And Gene Kerrigan, a great journalist, he's still writing. He's the only sane person in the Sunday Independent, gets the back page. But he came out here when the, the towers were brand new, I think they were two years old, and he spoke to people. And they just said, there's there's nothing for kids to do. And they said, ironically, for a place that has nothing for children in it, it's overrun by them. There were so many kids and so many hopeful young families that just, what they needed in life just wasn't provided. So when you look at the, the, the towers, I think they were, I think we need to build up. I think that's going to be vital to getting out of the housing crisis and everywhere. I think building up good quality public housing is important but Ballymun the towers were so evocative weren't they they were so like they were so big and they 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 symbolized so much well you could see them from the Dublin mountains yeah but the problem was on the ground you know and and the absence of amenities and services on the ground is what is what doomed Ballymun what I like
1: what I like is that we all paid our rent and you know ma, when she lived here she was saying it was amazing you could you know go over and say I need, uh, you know, my window fixed or this and that. And by the time we got back from the shops, the Dublin City Council fellow was there doing it and yeah. putting the window in. But she said, that didn't last long. Yeah. And although lifts, we, although you know? we continued to pay our rent for 30, 40 years, the upkeep of them by the landlords just didn't happen. And it reminds yeah. me of the tenements. You so what's what the
0: story with the, te- the, yeah, the, te- the tenements? Um, Henrietta
2: Street, is that all, was that all tenement street at one time? Back in the day, in the 18th century, it was... Essentially, one family, one house. And then, in the 19th century, a couple of landlords move in. Uh, one guy, Alderman Joseph Mead, he's a councillor, and he's a former Lord Mayor of Dublin. And he takes over a number of the houses, and he subdivides them, cuts them up. So, a room like this, he'd say, well, there's two rooms in this. You know, you could turn this into two rooms. And he divides the houses, and he stripped And he stripped out, stripped out the radiators, stripped yeah, out the banisters. Strips out the the... Georgian stuff and sold them in in London
0: sell them at auction I was reading a clip there a while back it's about do you know as you come back up from Gardner Street yeah come Upper Gardner Street there's a big square there yeah that little park in the middle of it that's not Paranel Square is it? Uh, Mountjoy Square Mountjoy Square I couldn't think of the name of it right and there's uh, there's old big old buildings there also yeah but um, say recently in the last say a couple of months for instance yeah. it was put up for sale but it was it was owned by so many families throughout the years but back then when um let's say go back whatever amount of years probably 80 years or more whatever yeah. and there was um there was again like the tenements there were so many families living in this one building but I think it was a three I'm not sure it was a three or a five story building anyway yeah they are fairly high anyway yeah 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 but um, there was, uh, of course, loads of families living in them. But in the uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the latest, say the latest owner, if you like, he put the building up for sale. And as it was to be, this old lady came knocking on the door, and she just uh, now he he'd never seen her before. Obviously, she was something like ninety. I think she was ninety two years old, something like that. Anyway. Right? And um, he uh, basically asked her who she was and she gave a bit of a story that she used to live there years and years ago. Now I'm saying 92, could be 82 as well. But anyway, um, so she asked him, could could she come in? Uh, but there was another, say, a younger, a younger lady with her. I think it was her niece, yeah? And he let her in, of course, because she told him yeah, that yeah. she lived here back so many years and all of a sudden she um she ran up all the stairways she's an old lady wow. and she ran up all the stairs now the stairs are going around in these buildings as far as yeah, I know yeah, yeah. and until she got to the very top and uh, the, the the room that she used to live in basically she just went into into the into the room and just yeah. went into like amazement if you like Mason, it? and it just brought her all back and uh, so she took a little bit of a break anyway she stood around for a little while and then she went back down the stairs again and the owner asked her, he said if you don't mind me asking, he said why did you do that? She said, I'll tell you why, she said when I was a little girl, she said we used to live here as it was called the tenement basically eh, at the time and there were so many families here, she said and everybody was strangers, basically, if you like. And she said, um, "At night, there was only one toilet in the building. And at night, she said, if I needed to use the the bathroom, basically, I was too scared. There was no lighting in the in the building. She said I was too scared to uh, to go down to the bathroom, basically, in the dark, basically, yeah. So what her mother used to do, yeah, she stand on the very top of the balcony, yeah." Now the stairs are going around, yeah, down the way, basically in a ring, right? And she said, i'd um the mother, her mother would stand there, and she'd light a paper, and she'd get the paper ready just light it, basically <laughs> That's she'd let it drop slowly, and the girl, as this woman now as, a, as she's an old lady now, as a young girl, she'd run as fast as she could down the stairs slowly to keep with the light. You see, Very good. so now she had the whole. She had light the whole way down, and of course she used the bathroom, and she show up to the mother. Then the mother would light another one. Wow! And she would run all the way back up the stairs again because the paper was keeping the stairwell lit up basically. Yeah. And she went back down the stairs again. Social history at its best. And yeah, but that was brilliant. It was a lovely story, and um, she explained to the she explained to to the owner. She said, when I seen that, someone told her that the place was for sale, basically. And she said, I knew she said, would never, ever, ever get a chance to do this again, she Brilliant. said. But they couldn't believe what astonished them most was how fit she was for an old lady. she run right up the stairs. Yeah. Brilliant. But that was only about, like, I read that story about three months ago, probably. Wow. Yeah,
1: absolutely That's a lovely Would you come in that's And amazing. have a look around Would you come into Henrietta Street Into where? Well, I, I, no, I'd
0: love to go into that one That I was talking about oh, deadly, I yeah. think it was number 7 On that And, uh, and Mount Joy Square Mount Joy
1: Square Well,
0: Donald works in uh, Henrietta Street what, I was, what that brought me back To that little bit there was When he was explaining About Henrietta Street I was thinking in my own mind There's probably Hundreds of people That have wonderful stories Even if times were hard And times were rough they could probably think back that the, these were their happiest times. They can still bring the happiness and the good stories out of that, if you know what I mean. Like that story I just told there now. That just, sense of community was, was so very strong. very interesting.
2: Some of the people that come into the museum were moved out to the new suburbs and they, they sometimes talk about how they actually ended up missing the tenements. You know, even though they had their own front garden and their own back garden or whatever in Crumlin, which was a mad thing for a kid who grown up in a single room in Henrietta Street, they missed the community of the streets. And that brought some people of longingly back, which is fascinating too, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, I'd love to go in with
1: you, Martin, because that's where Donald is working there and uh, another mate of mine, Dara, is working there as well and um Dara's invited us in in the new year. If we want to go in, bring a couple of people in and we'll have a look around. Oh, There's so much of this History of Dublin is tied up in there, but the history of, part of the history of Ballymun is tied up in those tenements yeah. as well. And there was a family from Ballymun, uh, the Winstons, lived in uh, Henrietta Street. There's a, an RT documentary about the
0: tenements there. Yeah,
2: Catherine has
0: uh, given some great stuff to the museum over the years too, from that family. I'd say there's a million, I'd say there's a million good stories about yeah. these things. The old, and I
1: think that that's what you
0: enjoy because you can see a smile on your face yeah. there. It's those things. Who, who sings the song of "The Dubliners"? Was it "Dublin in the
2: Rare Old Times"? Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I I uh, I got to know a fella in the last couple of years, Liam Sutcliffe, He's since passed away, but he was the guy who blew up Nelson's Pillar, and I interviewed him about that. And I went along to Liam's funeral, and they played that song "Dublin in the Rare Old Times," and there's a line in it, you know, "The pillar and the met have gone." He fucking blew up the pillar. it's Liam got rid of it. Yeah. But yeah, I love that song, Pete Saint John. It's it's uh, it's, it's little quite little. Emo- emotional, isn't it? Quite emotional. Like the
1: first time I spoke to you properly ten years ago on Doll TV, you were talking about Come Here to Me, which were you turned into a book. Yeah, and, and I think
2: blogs—they were a moment in time. You know, yeah. they were the, they were the thing. Ten so years it was, ago, it was a blog that you turned into a book, and now you've got a podcast, a podcast. turned into a book. Yeah, Tree castles burning, and turned into a book called "The History of Dublin in Twelve Streets." Uh, it's done well, people. I think people got very into podcasts uh, during the lockdown. You know, I think when you when you all you could do was walk around five fucking km and lose your mind, uh, they were a great help for people. I think, and I think that that built up a community of people that feel an attachment to us. So it's good to see the book doing well. It's funny people always say, Oh, books are yesterday's thing or whatever, but people still love them, you know. They're um the idea, it's kind of like a it's a small book, so you can pocket it. And I've been talking to people who said, Yeah, I went down the twelve streets. Where can people buy uh tree castles born uh, in the history of Dublin Oh, twelve the book streets? Bookshops and a few bad ones. Yeah, a few bad ones. But I always go to the independent ones, I always support the little ones. So in town I love uh, books upstairs on Delir Street. They've lovely coffee shop in there as well. It's a great place to go and uh, Hodges figures, you know, which is says like something. Like Harry Potter, doesn't it? Hodges figures. <laughs> yeah. It's gone since like the eighteenth century. There's just so many great little bookshops in, in in town, and they're the ones they're the ones to support. You know, not Amazon. They make a lot of money. They do, and uh, <laughs> they're burning down the forest as they're doing it. And thanks for having me. I mean, it's a really nice pod, and it's uh, it's great to see the space that you do it. And wow, it's fantastic. It's. Uh, You've so much hope and so much pride in, in Ballymun. That's really inspiring. And I think it's, uh, as you said, it's 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 such a a proud place and the connections to the heart of the city. Uh, like, talk about families at the Winston's and so much more and the access across the street. I just, I love coming out here and I love the, the infectious, uh, maybe infectious isn't a very popular word anymore after a pandemic, but I love the infectious gras you have for, for Ballymun. By the way, Dean is moving back into Ballymun. He feels like a traitor. He moved out to... Um,
0: well, hi, doing, is it?
1: Uh, mine and my parents out in Port <laughs> 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 I think one of the, uh, our culture in Ballymorne is community. I think that yeah. that's what people, that opens their heart when they come out here and they see that because the myth is that, you know, we're going to rob you. But actually, we just want to steal your heart, you know. <laughs> Let's not leave it for another 10 years to sit down. Absolutely. And, Who and knows
2: and where we'll be in 10 years? And have a, <laughs> and have a catch up. and uh, In a united, prosperous Ireland.
1: Um, Donald has a lovely podcast as well Called Three Castles Born And as I said I was at the electric picnic And I got to witness it In the flesh It was lovely Lovely Okay Donald Thank you
2: very much So
1: that was episode 28 With historian Podcaster And all round super dude Donald Fowler Go and check out his book And his podcast Three Castles Born If you want uh, a lovely Social history of Dublin I just want to wish you Your friends And your family a merry Christmas, a happy New Year, and go into twenty twenty three with your heart open and a bit more tolerance. So I just want to apologise. We had some sound issues uh, this week in Donald's interview. Some gremlins in the in the pipes in the cables. We enjoyed the interview. Hopefully you did too. And shall we get him back in a couple of months and uh, get an update? See how his book is doing. See what other interesting projects he's doing. So it's coming to the end of twenty twenty two. We're six months into our podcast, and we just want to say thank you to those people. Who tune in, who listen to our podcast, who share it, who give us uh, five star reviews on Spotify. Uh, so, like, share, listen, subscribe, send it on to your granny, send it on to your cousins and your mates in Australia, uh, in America, in Canada, anywhere in the world where there's Irish people, send it on to them, give them a little gift, send them on a Traveller on the Countryman podcast. And again, we really appreciate people listening and sharing. And enjoying the podcast. Give us a bit of feedback. Uh, What guests would you like on in 2023? So you can listen to the podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify. You can now listen to it on YouTube as well. We have a TikTok, we have an Instagram. Like, share, listen, and get more people listening to a Traveller and a Countryman podcast. So that's us for this episode traveller and a countryman podcast if you like it let us know share it around and uh, shall we see you on the road